got two family updates here. The first one relates to COVID and the pandemic. Obviously, in the, ne- in the last few weeks, um, restrictions have begun to be rolled back. And so I asked you guys to give us a few weeks as we recalibrated what that would look like for Greenhouse. We want to continue to operate in a way that is out of an abundance of caution and love for our church family and the surrounding community. And so we've taken some time to consult with local leadership um, as well as other churches, especially Calvary, who has been an incredible and gracious host. Can we give it up one more time for Calvary? They've been great. And so we wanted to see what they were planning. And so here is the plan. Um, Beginning in the month of June, we will move to doing masks in sort of a restaurant style. So what we've been doing in restaurants here in South Florida for the last bunch of months, we'll begin doing here during our services, which means when you're in all of the common areas, when you're going through the hallways, when you're using the bathroom, when you're dropping off your kids for kids' church, you'll keep your mask on. Once you make it to your seat, you can choose what you want to do, whether you want to keep your mask on or take it off. My encouragement to you is when we're singing to keep that mask on, that's when a lot of the projectiles go flying, spit, and otherwise. Um, But once you're seated for the rest of service during the sermon, you'll be able to choose whether you want to keep that mask on or off starting in June. Once we're outside, um, pretty strong guidance, overwhelming guidance is once you're outside, you can take that mask off outside the building. Just try not to congregate and clump up with a bunch of people. July, the hope and plan would be, barring any sort of a setback or major spike, we would hope to move towards masks being optional during the month of July. So that means if you've been kind of waiting, you're like, I'm planning to get the vaccine. I just, uh, I don't really know at some point. This is your moment. Go ahead and make that happen because you have a sense of where we're going in the next several months. So this is kind of in, we're not all the way at the forefront of things, but we're also not lagging way behind larger South Florida community. This kind of puts us in the middle of operating at an abundance of caution while also moving forwards towards some sense of normalcy. Praise the Lord. Announcement number two, which is also exciting, we are in the process of finalizing the lease once again to be back at Western High School on Sundays this summer. Thank you, Lord. Yes, very exciting news. Um, That could be as early as mid-June or as late as early July. So sometime within the next several weeks, we will be back on Sundays at Western Church Online. People in the room, all of God's people said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So if you have questions about that, feel free to come up and ask me. But that is the flow. Now you can start my sermon timer as we jump into the message. We are in the midst of a new series called the Leadership Challenge, talking through the book of what? Nehemiah. Some of y'all are tracking. I think it's literally on the screen. The book of Nehemiah. And, uh, and we've been dialoguing on the subject of at this point, in this juncture, in this true story, it's a really bad situation, the the city, Nehemiah's home city, Jerusalem, it lies in ruins and the walls are broken down and there's dissension and there's division and it's very tempting to feel like things are utterly hopeless. But in the midst of the shambles, God does what he always does. He calls a leader to rebuild. If you've missed it, the last few weeks we jumped out of the series, so let me catch us back up to speed. By the way, two weeks ago, Nancy shared. Did you guys enjoy that? She did phenomenal. That was awesome. Nancy shared talking about Mary. Last week we had Rabbi Matt, my my buddy, the Messianic rabbi from Seattle. If you missed either of those, catch up. You want to on the podcast or on our YouTube channel. Search Greenhouse South Florida. But let me catch us up to speed here with Nehemiah. Chapter 1, we're introduced to Nehemiah. He hears about the walls that are down in his hometown of Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah is in exile. He is living in, in Susa. He's living in Persia. But he hears about Jerusalem. His heart is broken. He gets a burden from God. And you remember what he does initially? He prays 
and he fasts. He prays and he fasts. He, he sees the heartbreak. He feels it deeply and he brings it to God. Four months go by and Nehemiah, you remember, he's the cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah has the spiritual audacity to be sad in the king's presence. You remember a, a, a decision that would have been punishable by death. And he steps out and the king doesn't kill him. In fact, the king has compassion and says, hey, knee. I don't know if that would what we call him, but I like that nickname. Hey, knee. Um, what's going on, man? You never, you've never been sad in my presence before and I don't think you're sick. And so... Nehemiah steps out and says, here's what's happening. He tells him about the situation, and the king says that Nehemiah can go to help rebuild. Not only does he give him permission, he actually gives him provision as well. And so Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem, and what's the first thing that he does? He builds a team. He builds a team because leadership requires people. If you don't have people, you're not leading. You're just taking a walk. Leadership, somebody, anybody tracking with me on that one? I thought that was funnier than y'all, y'all didn't laugh. Okay, so anyways, um, so Nehemiah gets some people. Chapter three, they begin actually building the wall. Chapter four, they hit opposition. Everybody say opposition. Because haters gonna hate. Nothing new about that. And so initially the opposition just is, it's words, it's verbal, it's taunting, but eventually the opposition gets threatening. In fact, by the end of chapter four, they've had to divvy up the team. Half of the team is building the wall. Half of the team become bodyguards. The threats are real. They are in a life-threatening situation and they end up all working with a sword at their sides ready to go. We talked a few weeks ago about how leaders have to expect opposition. Now, they've had opposition from the outside, and it's one thing when opposition comes from the outside, from external people and external factors and external forces, but now they encounter internal friction as well. See, it's one thing to handle external opposition, but how do you handle conflict within your own team, within your own family, within your own business, within your own organization? Well, let's dive into chapter 5 and see what God has to teach us. Why don't you stand to your feet all over the room if you're watching online as we read and honor God's word. By the way, church family, I got to let y'all know, this weekend, Greenhouse Guyana is having their first ever weekend service and they're watching right now. Can y'all give them a hand? Can you, turn, can you turn the camera and say, we love you, Guyana? Ready? One, two, three. There it is. I hope y'all feel the love. So excited for you, Michelle. Go get them in Jesus' name. All right, Nehemiah chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, Sky Bible is up for your viewing enjoyment. We will begin in verse 1, and I'll unpack it as we move forward. Y'all ready? Wow. Diane Levy's ready. The rest of y'all, are you ready? Okay, here we go. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so give us grain and, and so we can eat and keep alive. And there were others who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers, our children are, are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Nehemiah says, and I was very, what does it say? Angry. Did you know that could be biblical? You know God actually, I know we all think like followers of Jesus, all we do is love. You know that's not actually true. In fact, there are Bible verses that say, you who fear the Lord hate, what? Evil. Nehemiah says, I was angry. When I heard their outcry, 
and these words. Stop right there and let's pray. Jesus, help us out. Give us your heart and make it clear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can find your seat wherever you're at. Turn to your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Just tell them in faith. It's going to be good. If you're online, you can type in the chat. It's going to be good. If you're in Guyana, you can turn to a neighbor and tell them it's going to be good. We, we live in a strange moment. Can I get an amen for that one? We live in a strange moment. We live in a pivotal moment. Namely, we're not quite sure what kind of a culture we want. Let me explain what I mean by that. On, on one hand, we want a culture of law, especially when it's not us that live in the seat of culpability. We, we want they, whoever the they are, the other are, we want them to pay. We want there to be retribution. We want people to have to, to, to receive the just rewards of their wrong decisions. We want a culture of law. But on the other hand, especially when it's our crew, our tribe, our people, our crew that, that lie in the seat of culpability, well, now we don't want a culture of law. Now we want a culture of grace. We want a culture of mercy. We want a culture uh, of charity. We say, listen, listen, everybody makes mistakes. See, we, we, we want a culture of law, but then we want a culture of grace. We want a culture of pride. Man, be proud of where you're at. Be proud of where you came from. Be proud of your situation. Be proud. Don't, you got everything. We want a culture of pride until we see pride in they and the other and the people that are not from your crew, not from your tribe. And then, and then we cry out for humility. When we see pride in others, we, we find it nauseating and we want there to be a shift. See, we're not really sure what kind of culture we want. But culture is vital. Culture is foundational. Culture is pivotal. See, every leader has inherited a culture. Is this true? Every leader has inherited a culture. Every business has a culture. Every family has a culture. Every organization has a culture. Every friend group has a culture. Every leader has inherited a culture. And by the way, every leader creates a culture as well. It is not a question of if you have a culture in your business, family, organization, friend circle, whatever the case might be, whatever sphere of influence God has given you. The only question is what kind of culture you have or what kind of culture you've created. My wife and I have two children. Our oldest, Liam, is five years old, and that boy is a, well, almost five years old, and that boy is a trip. And we have found ourselves regularly as he gets older, standing appalled at certain things he does or says. We, we just stand there baffled. He, he comes home and he says something, or he, he responds in a certain way. We're like, oh my God, where did he learn that from? Sometimes it's Nancy saying it. Sometimes me, we're like, where did he learn that from? And we'll, you know, we'll go to the usual suspects. We'll blame his school. He goes to a little bilingual preschool. We're like, what are they teaching our son at this school? Don't they realize that they are educating a prince of God? What are they teaching this boy? And so we found ourselves multiple times in this moment. And sometimes it's a few minutes, a few hours, a few days later. And all of a sudden, me or Nancy will do the said thing that we were so appalled that our son did. And we realized, oh, snap. It wasn't his school, and it wasn't the TV, and it wasn't, it wasn't the Paw Patrol. It was the Lash family. That's where he learned to he, Any parents? Come on. Once any parents been there, the struggle is real. None of y'all? Okay, thank you, Stuart. You made me feel a little bit better. We often have cultures that reproduce attitudes and actions that are not on purpose, but they are our fault. 
Culture is defined as a set of shared attitudes and values, goals and practices that characterize an institution, an organization, or a group. We've talked up to this point about how Nehemiah, as as an operating example for us, stepped in to get God's burden, God's heart, God's vision, God's plan, and all of these things are vital. We've talked about the the, the burden, the vision, the people, and, and ultimately the plans, and these are amazing, but history has shown us over and over again that no matter how great the vision, no matter how great the burden, no matter how great the plans, toxic culture gobbles up healthy vision every day of the week. Peter Drucker, the famed business leader and thinker, said it like this. He says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. I love that. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Inspiring burdens are undone by toxic culture all the time. Amazing talent and personnel are squandered every day by toxic culture. Don't get me wrong. We do need God's burden and God's heart and God's vision and God's plan. And then we're going to need to bring around people to help us pursue and accomplish those things. But do not underestimate the power of culture to release or suppress the potential of any family or church, or microchurch. See, here's the problem. For most of us, we've simply drifted into a culture accidentally. And if we leave it unexampined, unexampined, that's not a word, unexamined, we will find disastrous consequences, which is why this sermon and this chapter is all about getting a culture intentionally. Turn to your neighbor and say intentionally. Tell them on purpose on purpose, getting to a culture on purpose, the right culture, a culture of the kingdom of God. I've got one big idea, one core thought, if you will, and I'd encourage you to jot this down if you're taking notes. I see a bunch of you taking notes, which makes me happy. If you're online, I don't know if you are. I'm just going to believe you are. Here's the big idea. Culture is what you teach and what you tolerate. Culture is what you teach and what you tolerate. See, both of those are important because you could have a culture, you could have a family, you could have a business that says, we, we, don't, we don't gossip in our team. That's fine. You're teaching the right thing, but what do you do when people gossip? How do you tolerate it? Culture is what you teach and what you tolerate. Nehemiah 5, we're introduced to the leaders that Nehemiah is leading. This is his staff. This is his team, if you will. And so I want us to take a look at the culture he creates with them. Point number one, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Point number one is this. Do justice. Everybody say justice. Do justice. Be faithful to heaven. Let's jump in verse one. There arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. There were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we're many, but uh, give us grain so we can eat and stay alive. There were others who said, man, we've, we've had to give out our land to get houses and, and, and things to get grain because of the famine. Others said, man, we, we had to borrow money for our taxes, and now we've had to sell our children into slavery or bonded labor. Nehemiah is presented at the onset of his leadership with a heartbreaking reality. Remember now, they've been here for about 100 years. This is not a brand new thing that happened. This is the leaders coming to him, or at least the people coming to him with what has always been. We did a series back in February of last year on justice, and we said that in the midst of a day and age, maybe you're watching online, you're like, what exactly? Yeah, justice, everyone's tweeting about it, everyone's talking about it. If you, if you want to go back to the manufacturer's instructions, God is the righteous judge. He is, gets to set the terms on his time frame, and, and, and justice, we said, is to do what is right in the eyes of the judge. 
See, justice actually demands a judge. Justice is doing the right thing or the just thing according to who? According to the judge in heaven, according to God. We talked a few weeks ago about how leaders see it clearly. Nehemiah stops here. He takes a pause to identify clearly the problem. One commentary says it like this. Even though the Jewish exiles back in Jerusalem for nearly a century, the infrastructure was not sufficient to support the growing population. The needs of the people were exacerbated by a recent famine and the fact that because of the workers working on the wall, there were not as many laborers to work in the fields. Multiply this with the heavy taxes the people were required to pay and the fact that the leaders were taking advantage of the people for selfish benefit rather than helping those in need. And you have a big problem. Nehemiah inherits a leadership nightmare. Not only are the walls broken down, but at least you could have a team that's, that's galvanized and ready to work. He's got the walls broken down, and his staff members are, are selling one another's family and children into slavery. And you thought your job was dysfunctional. And Nehemiah steps in and realizes a few things. He realizes that those with large families are struggling to buy food for everyone. That some were forced to sell property to buy food and pay taxes. Others had no property, and so they were forced to sell themselves and their children. And the leaders, these, these leaders in this context, these leaders, these exiled leaders who have been bought back or brought back, rather than helping, are making it worse. This begs a question, and I think it's an important one for all of us. By the way, we started this series with the supposition that if you are a breathing human being, how many human beings do I have in the room? If you are a homo sapien that breathes oxygen, all right, you're a human being. If you are a human, you are a leader, even if you're just leading yourself. How did Nehemiah, as a leader, see it so clearly? And, and this is vital. Because Nehemiah had created a culture where people mattered. You're like, John, how do, how do you know that? I know that not because of what he said, but because of what he did. Namely, Nehemiah stopped and he listened. He stopped and he listened. In fact, verse 6, it says of Nehemiah, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and when I heard these words. I need you to understand, with everything else on his plate, if there ever could have been a leader that could have said, man, I'm too busy. Man, don't you know what we've got on our plate? Literally, there are people on every side of them trying to kill them. He's got half his staff working bodyguard duty like Will Smith, and, he's like, and, and people come to him complaining, and he does not say, now listen, I, I ain't got time for that. We got bigger fish to fry. Nehemiah stops and listens. Listen up, friends, because this is crucial. Nehemiah is not too busy to stop and listen. Where did he learn that from? He learned it from God. The Hebrew word that's used here for cry, he heard their cry, is the word seaka. Everybody say that with me. Seaka. Oh, that's like all two of y'all. Okay, cool. Y'all are with me. This is great. Uh, seaka, this Hebrew word, it suggests an outcry of anguish or great pain. This word is used throughout the Old Testament, often used, check this out, as a cry especially heard by God. Here's what I'm trying to get at. In the same way that God responds to the cries of his people, in the same way that we see throughout the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament that God's ear is inclined to the cry of the poor, to the cry of the oppressed, to the cry of those in need, Nehemiah steps in and in the same way that God hears the cries of his people, Nehemiah hears them as well. Why? Because great leaders are great listeners. 
And Nehemiah has established with his actions a culture of empathetic and compassionate listening. Nehemiah establishes this kingdom culture so like God who hears the cries of his people when they're in need. Nehemiah stops and listens and he does not simply listen. He then leans in to do justice, which is not some cultural moving target of whatever's in vogue. He does justice according to the judge, according to God in heaven. Point number one is do justice. Do justice. Here, here's what's happened. It has been almost 100 years. This thing has not been happening for a few days or a few months or a few years. It's been happening for a while. And what has happened at this point is earth has decided this is fine. This is a good setup. The rich are getting richer. The poor are being sold. You know, it's just what it is. Sorry, man, you should have done better at your savings account or whatever the case might be. And they are continually manipulating. And Nehemiah steps in and he pauses to listen. And he says, listen, listen, this doesn't fly anymore. I know you've decided it's okay with earth, but it's not okay with heaven. So it's not going to happen here anymore. Disciples, followers of Jesus, let me remind you, we, we do the right thing around here. We cannot have a culture that fails to clearly identify what the standard is. And by the way, the standard is right here. It's God's word. Amen? The standard is the Bible. Nehemiah looks at the standard from the righteous judge and decides this can't fly anymore. Culture goes bad when truth is a moving target, which is why we need the firm foundation of God's word. Nehemiah hears their cry, and his response is maybe not something you would anticipate. His response is anger. That's what it says in verse 6. His response is righteous anger fueled by mercy and compassion. Number one, the first point is to do justice. This obviously comes from Nehemiah. What does God require of you? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. Point number one is to do justice, but point number two is to love mercy. Turn to your neighbor and say, have mercy. Have mercy. Have mercy. Have compassion with earth. We're going to be compassionate with earth. Let's jump in verse 7. Nehemiah is angry. He heard their cry. It says, and I took counsel with myself. Interesting phrase. Only used once in the scripture. It's deep and passionate introspection. I took counsel within myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest. In other versions, it says usury. It's unjust interest. It's, it's inappropriate interest. It's manipulative interest. And, and you're taking it from your brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers to be sold to the nations, but you even sell them. And they were silent and couldn't find a word to say. Nehemiah, after giving this serious thought and consideration, after stopping and listening to the cries of the people, he concluded something, namely that this was not their problem. This was a leadership problem. That the leaders were not leading like God intended. By the way, this is like a, a little pause, parenthetical citation. Here is a leadership pro tip. There is a few leadership decisions that Nehemiah makes that I do not want us to miss. If you are a leader, and you are, at some point you are going to be called by God to challenge in love. See, Nehemiah creates a healthy culture of loving and clear, honest confrontation. 
The Hebrew word that uses, it's used here for a, a great assembly. It says, and he called a great assembly. This was not some generic meeting word. This word in the original language connotes a very specific meeting for a very specific purpose. It's like when your mom says, Jonathan Isaac, you know. She's not just calling you to say, I love you, son. You are in trouble. That's a, none of y'all have that experience. Full name gets utilized. You're like, oh, Lord, have mercy. This is going to get real, right? He uses a very specific word for a very specific meeting for a very specific purpose. And it is an example of courageous leadership and a healthy culture. Because leadership and culture is what you teach and what you tolerate. Nehemiah realizes I, we cannot tolerate this any longer. Says who? Says God. So we'll do something about it. And he gives... In a day and age where the majority of our circles or earthly leadership gives backbiting feedback, not to your face feedback, Nehemiah gives specific focus correction and a strong confrontation. You ever confronted someone like this in love? You ever been confronted like this in love? I remember talking to my dad, one of my faith heroes, and I came back from college, and, and I was getting mentored and discipled, and I was growing spiritually, and it was incredible, and I, I came back to my dad, and I'm like, Dad, like... And, and, I, and I really, my dad's like an incredible man of faith, man of humility, man of wisdom. I'm like, Dad, what are some areas you feel like I could grow in? And I thought he was going to say something like, son, you just keep reading your Bible with passion. Son, you just keep like, I, I'm waiting for this. And he's like, oh, you, you want my feedback? I'm like, yeah, Dad. He's like, yeah, you just need to learn to say no. I was like, oh, 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 Okay. He's like, yeah, I mean, I think you say yes to, like, basically anything that comes on your plate, and you're kind of you're, you're burning the candle at both ends. You can do it while you're young. Eventually, you burn yourself out. And I think you need to be a little bit more honest, John. It's not really always about God and people. It's kind of about you feeling good of being the guy that can come to the rescue. Ooh. I was like, okay, I guess I did want feedback, so, whoa, there we go. I'm going to work on that one. And I remember stepping away, and it was this interesting feeling because part of me felt like sliced up. And the other part of me felt so loved and honored because I knew it came from a place of love and I knew it was true. See, this is what Nehemiah does. This is the gift that he gives. This is part of a healthy culture of direct feedback. Proverbs says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Nehemiah steps in with his team and levels specific, clear charges against the leaders. Number one, they're exacting usury, usury or unjust interest from their brothers. And number two, it was heartless in how they were doing it because they knew that some of it was causing their countrymen to become enslaved. Nehemiah says, listen, wake up, listen, hello, you are doing to our brothers, our brothers and sisters who were enslaved in, in Susa, and you are doing to them what everyone just did to us. Like, do you realize God just brought us back and you are now putting them back in bondage? What are you doing? See, but he takes it one step further. We'll call this leadership pro tip number two, because culture is it's what you teach, but it's also what you tolerate. Nehemiah makes clear, hey, we are not going to tolerate this any longer. And he goes in and, in fact, makes clear things they need to change. But he actually takes it even deeper. He says, listen, I need to teach about why we got here in the first place. Check this out in verse 9. Nehemiah said to them, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk, what does it say, in the fear of who? God. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? Nehemiah says, listen, what you're doing, it's wrong and it needs to change. We will not tolerate human trafficking in our leadership circles. Duh, right? 
He says, but let me take it a step further because you know how you got here? It's because you don't fear God. Nehemiah actually steps in and not only does he not tolerate the wrong things, but he teaches the right things. He teaches the deep things. He reminds them, listen, all of your life and leadership should hinge on the fact that you have a healthy, appropriate, loving, respect, awe, and admiration for God. He's the boss and he sees it all. Nehemiah says the core issue with your actions, it's not that you're bad people. It's not that you don't care. You just don't fear God. Mm. Nehemiah presents a four-part solution to the problem. He doesn't just call them out and say, yeah, you should feel horrible about yourself. He actually gives them a shot at redemption, at reconciliation, at making things right. He says, here's what I need you to do. He says, me and my crew, we're going to lend money to the people now. You're done with the money lending. You do horrible at it. You put people in slavery. We're going to do the money lending from now on to help people buy grain and taxes because that is logistically necessary at this juncture. Now, you're going to stop charging interest. You're going to give the people back their property, and you're going to repay the unjust interest that you have charged. This is Nehemiah taking a book. You remember Zacchaeus when he encounters Jesus. What does he say? He says, Jesus, all the wrong money that I took unjustly from people, I'm going to give back twofold, prompted out of his heart. John the Baptist says, bear fruits fitting with repentance. Nehemiah gives them a shot to repent. This is the second point. See, it's not just about doing justice and being faithful to heaven. It's about loving mercy and being compassionate with earth. Nehemiah gives them a shot to repent. This is beautiful leadership, friends. This is leading like Jesus, by the way. He gives them a shot to make it right. See, if all we do is justice, it really begs the question, what do we do with people when they prove they're humans? Meaning they blow it. They mess up. They get it wrong. See, we need justice, but we don't just need justice. We also need justice with mercy. We do need truth, but we can't handle truth without grace, which is why Jesus, Scripture says, comes full of both, grace and truth. And if we're going to be leaders that lead in a kingdom way, we must have a culture that both clarifies truth but creates an environment of grace. The way we say it here in greenhouses, we envision a space where people can belong before they believe and believe before they behave. We want to help ordinary people become. That means it's going to be a journey. That means it's going to be a process. That means there will be plenty of, hey, man, I blew it. I know you did, and I love you, and I forgive you. Let's keep moving forward conversations along the way. It will not be a byproduct and an anomaly to the vision. It is the vision. Love mercy. So how does it go for Nehemiah? He brings a strong charge. He brings a strong challenge. He makes it explicit. And by the way, he does not leave it in theory. Well, just say you feel bad and you're sorry. He's like, okay, and here's what you can do to make it right. Check it out how it turns out for Nehemiah. Verse 11. He says, return to them this day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, and wine, and oil you've been exacting from them. And the people say, check this out, we will restore these things. And will require nothing more from them. And will do as you say. And Nehemiah calls the priests and makes them swear to do as they promise. The people listen. Check this. This is potentially a hundred years of systematic oppression. Nehemiah speaks clear, godly, kingdom truth. The leaders repent. He says, make an oath. And if you don't do it, God's going to curse you. They're like, cool, we're game with that. We'll do it. And all, I mean, this is incredible transformation. How? The grace of God. 
The Spirit of God. But Nehemiah had a secret weapon. You want to know what it is? Okay, cool. I'm going to tell you anyways. It's point number three. Number one is do justice. Number two is love mercy. But number three, the final point, walk humbly. Model the way. Nehemiah peels back the curtain and gives us a little backstory here. Verse 14. He says, moreover, from the time I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance. The former governors laid heavy burdens on the people, took from them the ration of daily silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so. Why? Because of the last line, fear of God. Because of the fear of God. He said, I persevered in the work on the wall. I had 150 people, Jewish and officials and people from other nations at my table. I I prepared a whole bunch of food for them, he says. And yet for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy for the people. I I need us to catch this. Nehemiah is calling out the leaders for being hypocrites. He's calling them out for living in a way that was antithetical to the ways of God and the way God had called his people to treat one another. He's calling them to repentance and to make things right. And the people stop, they listen, and they repent. Why? Because before Nehemiah ever asked something of his leaders, he was living it himself. Whoo, this will preach. Friends, I need you to know, if you are desiring and dreaming to see a healthy, thriving kingdom of God type culture in your business, in your job, with your team, in your family, it will require you to be a healthy kingdom of God disciple first. Yeah, that'll preach. You could give a hand clap and also, ooh, I'm very convicted right now for that. Right? I'm not saying perfection. I don't, Nehemiah, I'm sure, was not perfect, but Buddy was real. He lived this thing. And so when he calls out the leaders, they can't say anything. Why? Because like Daniel, Nehemiah lived it. He lived it. By the grace and mercy of God, he lived it. And so they had a model to follow because Nehemiah walked humbly. Leaders must model the way and take up the towel of a servant. Here's where I'm going to land it. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close in a final chorus in just a second. But, but Nehemiah ends with one final exclamation in verse 19. He talks about all the ways that he's called out these leaders to create a healthy culture of honest discourse and dialogue, clear and constructive criticism, feedback, and a call to repentance, living and modeling the way. Verse 19, here's the linchpin. And he says, remember me for my good, O God, and all that I have done for this people. Here's what happens. Nehemiah is living in a very uncommon leadership structure. He's leading things in a way that has not been done apparently for at least 100 years. Why? Because Nehemiah is living in light of eternity. Nehemiah is living out the call of Paul in Colossians 3. Don't just set your mind on things of earth. Set your mind on things above. He's living it before it was ever penned. Nehemiah is recognizing I'm not just living for earth. There's a God in heaven and he sees and he will repay Two weeks ago, Nancy, when she preached, encouraged us that that we walk, that we live in such a way where we remember him because at the cross, Jesus remembered us. 
And I feel like I'm supposed to encourage all of us here who are leading in different spheres of influence and in different junctures that, that people might not see it right away. People might ignore it. People might take advantage. But nothing done for God and his kingdom, nothing done as faith is ever wasted. Maybe this season has been an absolute gauntlet. Maybe you've cried more tears in this season than you ever have in your entire life put together. Maybe you're so tempted in this moment to think, man, no one cares and no one sees it and all the late nights and all the extra work and all the extra effort, it's all in vain. And I need to remind you, friend, like Nehemiah, he realized something. God sees it all. Galatians says, don't grow weary in doing good for if you faint not, you will reap a harvest. I got a text from a buddy a few weeks ago and I mentioned my dad. It was, he passed away unexpectedly about two years ago, a little over two years ago now. And man, it was a blow and I miss him every single day. So I had a friend text me and we we're texting back and forth and, and he's in sort of a pivotal life season. He says, man, John, I, I know you're still grieving the loss of your dad. He said, but he was such a pillar in our church families that I miss him as well. He said, you know, in fact, I... I've just kind of realized this, but when I'm at crossroads situations and I'm at pivotal junctions, I find myself asking the question, would Rabbi Neil want me to do this? I was really kind of honored in the moment, just the thought that my dad's legacy was continuing to move people in the direction of God and faith and the way of Jesus. And, and I was just struck by the fact that, that my buddy is being motivated by my father, literally, who's up in heaven. And that is fueling his decision-making on earth. And let me bring it around to all of us because the reality is if you follow Jesus, if you're watching online, if you're here in the room, that is not just my story. What Nehemiah is getting at is that our decision-making on earth is supposed to be fueled by the memory of our God who is up in heaven. And we pursue a culture of heaven because we ultimately realize that the king of heaven pursued us. And friends, his way is the best way. And his path is the best path. And there is nothing done for Jesus in faith that goes unseen. Every tear, every moment of sacrifice, every late night where you've spent up, if you're a parent and you're like, I'm praying to God for my kids, every single moment God sees it and he is a debtor to no one. Be faithful. By the grace and mercy of Jesus, be faithful. And he will lead us and he will give us the grace to follow if we only ask. Let's pray. You can bow your head and, and, and close your eyes just for a moment of quiet and privacy between you and God. If you're here and something's stirring on your heart, I want to give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You have not yet entered into this kingdom culture of mercy and grace and justice and love and compassion. I've got great news for you, friends. You could enter into it right now, this morning, whenever you're watching this on demand. You could enter in only through the sacrifice of Jesus, the grace and mercy and forgiveness and right standing with God. It is only made possible through Jesus. He is the greater Nehemiah who went and interceded with the king on our behalf when our walls were broken down and we could not repair them in our own. He paid the price. And if you're here in the room, if you're watching online and you're like, man, I, I, need, 
I need right standing with God. I need forgiveness. I know it. I feel it. I, you don't need to convince me anymore, Pastor John. Right now, wherever you're at, I just want you to shoot your hand up in the air. Even if you're watching online, I know I can't see it. I think there's something that happens in our hearts when we acknowledge what's happening on the inside. Wherever you're at, in the room or online, I just want you to utter a prayer just from your heart. There's no magic formula here. Something along the lines of, Jesus, I need you. I can't create the culture that I long to create because there's things on the inside of me that need to be made right. Change my heart. Change my perspective. Take out this heart of stone that feels so rocky and hard sometimes and give me a heart of flesh. Forgive me. Help me follow you. Maybe you're here and you're already a follower of Jesus in the room if you're watching online and, and you realize that during the course of this moment, this space, maybe God's been working on you for a little while. You want to repent of an unhealthy culture that, that you've established through your leadership, in your business, in your team, in your friend circle, in your family. And you want God's help to establish his culture, the culture of the kingdom. If that's you, wherever you're at, I just want you to raise your hand. Say, God, help me. Lord, I know the culture that I've created. We, we say the right things, but we don't do the right things, and it's consistent, and I feel like I can't help it. God, give me grace. Change in me the things that I want to see changed in the culture around me. Lord, do it in me first. You, look, you can look up at me. If I can get some of our prayer partners up here in the front, some of our microchurch leaders and prayer partners, if, if you know that, that God's working in your heart, we're gonna close in a final chorus and we'd love to pray with you all. I'll hop down here as well. If you're watching online, right there, wherever you're watching from, you can request prayer right there in the chat. You can text Jesus to the number on the screen. We'd love to walk with you in your faith journey, encourage you in your walk, help you plug into a life-giving community called a microchurch, praying God would bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. Love you, church. See you this week online. And Guyana Crew, can't wait to be with you soon.